Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow us on social media at Day Beautiful on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's guest is a DC-based writer with a degree from Columbia University and an MFA from the New School. She is a lecturer at the University of Maryland and American University. Her work can be found in Mason's Road, The Master's Review, Blue Mesa Review, and elsewhere. Her debut book, Dances, is out now. Please welcome Nicole Cuffey. Hey, Nicole. How you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I Yes, oh, thank you for being here. Um, I'm always... Even like four or five years in, I'm still amazed that people are willing to talk to me about their books. But uh, <laughs> uh, but Day Beautiful is fun, and I'm so glad to talk about your debut novel, Dances. Um, tell readers a little bit about what the book is from your perspective. Uh, from my perspective, this is a book primarily about family and what that means, and potentially making one's own family and finding a space as a Black woman. I want to start here because I just discovered this. I was just on your Twitter and, you know, when, when any book sells, it's in like publisher's marketplace and your mm-hmm. book sold us all the beautiful music and now it's called Dances. It did. And, I'm, yes. and I'm just curious because I don't think a lot of like listeners maybe think about like how titles change and why they change. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to talk about like the evolution of what it's sold under to what it's being published under? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, retitling the the manuscript was kind of this long, drawn out process. Um, so all the beautiful music was the title that I gave it. Um, mm-hmm. But I am notoriously terrible at titling my own work. Um, so I knew that probably at some point the title was going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, um, the team over at One World did kind of say that all the beautiful music was pretty, but it didn't really fit the main meat of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was this kind of like, I think this went on for like maybe like a month, maybe more. It was long back and forth over um, what could the new title be. And, um, you know, I can't say that I was coming up with any great ideas, but for a while we were kind of stalled out. Um, you know, my editor really wanted something that conveyed motion and um, there was this kind of urge to play with the word point. So on point, in point, something like that. Um, but I just, every time I heard something like that, I thought of the movie, The Turning Point, And I just, I couldn't do it because mm-hmm. um, it already exists. And at this point, it's almost uh, because that movie is sort of ballet canon. It's almost cliche to try and play with the word point in a title and ballet anything anymore. Yeah. Um, so um eventually we came up with I think it was like a list of three final options and dances was not actually on that list it was some variation thereof and we kind of whittled it down to dances because I liked the way that it um kind of did what my editor wanted so it referenced motion um but it also um, was really simple and easy for people to remember. And mm-hmm. it also sort of reminded me of those like um, paintings, like um, those classical pieces where you see like the muses and they're mm-hmm. dancing in the forest and it's like dances, you know, something like that. So yeah. um, that, that's how we landed on that. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing a writer a long time ago at this point, just talking about um, all he's a young adult author and all of his books were like one word 
and he really didn't want his next book to be that. It was uh, like a longer title. And so he's like, he suggested, let's just put it all together. So it's one word and the gimmick continues. And it's just fascinating <laughs> to me, like the the psychology behind book titles. Um, your yeah. book, we touched on, it's about, it's about family and finding yourself, but um, plot wise, it follows a dancer. Um, right. And, uh, you know, your bio says you have danced and, and, and I'm just curious, like, what was your background was, was dance or writing your first passion, like going back to being a kid. Writing was absolutely my first love. Um, and if it hadn't been, then I might be a dancer now, yeah. um, cause dancing was definitely my second love, I would say. Um, <clears throat> so I have been a storyteller since I could hold a pencil, but I was also in ballet very early mm -hmm. on. Um, and I hated it at first. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I did it for a few years as a kid before I convinced my mom that I wanted to quit. Um, but I never lost my love of the ballet world. So I was always, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm -hmm. I was always, um, going to the, or not going to the ballet. Ballet, but watching ballets and looking at dancers and reading about ballet and just being sort of obsessed with the art form and the beauty of it. Um, yeah. And so when I was a teenager, I was like, well, maybe I should revisit the actual practice of dance. So I resumed uh, ballet in high school and then actually continued continued on to college um, and dance throughout college and kind of still dance, not professionally and not mm -hmm. a professional. Um, I like to dance, but I don't like anyone seeing me dance. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, you know, just something that is a big love of mine. I love the physicality of it. I love the way it feels in my body, but above all, I just love the aesthetic. I love the art form. It's so yeah. beautiful and um, just kind of, it's a beautiful, like brutal art form in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I maintain yeah. that love of the ballet. So one thing I like to ask people who are like into art forms, like writing and dancing, like how similar or different you kind of approach the practice of it, like the the actual writing or I don't want to say the like choreography because I don't not you're not necessarily a choreographer, but you know what I mean? Like, how do you approach both art forms? Are they similar? Are they different? I would say that they are similar in some ways and different in other ways. So I would say that writing definitely comes much more instinctually to me. Um, if I don't write, I feel weird. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I will feel weird if I don't dance. Um, but it will take me a little longer to, to feel funny about that. And writing, I say I would do... I do kind of compulsively, so I can't help but to write um, or to tell stories or to be thinking of storytelling all the time. Dance isn't as consuming for me um, in my day-to-day -day life. I would say on a daily basis, I'm absorbed in some form of making a story in one way or another um, every day. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas with dance, um, it doesn't quite work that way for me. I definitely am um, someone who's pretty kinesthetic. So I move my body around a lot. Um, <clears throat> and dance maybe comes through a bit that way. Um, but I, you know, take my ballet classes twice a week, mm. or once a week right now, actually. Um, and that that is satisfying for me. Yeah. And with dance now, it, like, is it like the classes for for yourself you know or, or are you wanting to perform in some way shape or form even though you said you're not professional like is there some like oh let's do local dancing I mean I think this is kind of the thing that my 
approach to dance, my approach to writing have in common is just that I'm a perfectionist. Mm. So even if no one ever read my writing, I would still try to improve as a writer all the time. And even though I don't have any desire whatsoever to be on a stage, mm -hmm. um, I'm still a perfectionist when it comes to dance. I want to get it right. I want to continuously be working on technique. Um, and I love that precision, that attention to detail. Um, so I think that tendency of mine to be detail oriented and maybe a bit perfectionist and also just interested in fine tuning constantly serves me well in my writing career as yeah. much as it serves me well in dance. Yeah. When you're writing fiction uh, as a perfectionist, what, like what, what does that first draft look like? Are you able to get past this needs to be perfect? I had to learn how to do that. Um, so one of the ways that I try to bypass that is I actually write all of my first drafts out by hand first, um, because when I do that, I don't have time to sit there and make sure that every sentence is absolutely perfect um, as I'm writing. So that first draft just needs to get out. And so I do that, you know, analog right on paper. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes those perfectionist tendencies still come through. I'm good for tearing out an entire page and rewriting all over again, but that's so laborious that I don't do it as often as I might want to. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to sort of build in practices to make sure that I could write and get a draft out before going back in. And when I transcribe, so when I type up my handwritten draft, I, that's when I start fine tuning and editing a little bit. And then I usually give it a rest and then come back and do a more in-depth edit. Mm -hmm. That first edit when you are typing is a grammatical sentence structure. Uh, what's that first pass? That first pass is usually, yes, a lot of grammar and, you know, syntax checking on word choice. Um, but it can also be a stylistic thing, just not a very in-depth stylistic revision. So I might not move chapters around in that first pass, um, but I definitely will sort of fine tune character details, clean up dialogue. Um, maybe rethink scenes and how they play out, um, rethink metaphors. Definitely that happens a lot during that first pass. Um, so yeah, more like that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always fascinated. I talk a lot about the editing process. I just find it like, I find it probably the most fascinating thing about most books is the editing. And I know <laughs> I can't imagine people find it as sexy as I do, but I, I, it is amazing. Um, with dances, uh, handwritten then first pass draft how many how many edits do you take in general before you're willing to let someone read it um I have a good circle of friends some of whom have been with me since I got my MFA in grad school who I'm comfortable sending them a really messy draft mm. um so pretty much as soon as I've transcribed it and I've done that sort of first light edit um chances are I'll send it to somebody um, or a couple people who will read it over. Um, but I kind of won't let anyone else see it until I've gone through like a substantive, at least one substantive revision. Um, so that would involve like moving things around. Like I have to feel like I really like excavated um, the draft before I'm mm -hmm. willing to let anybody outside of that small circle see it. Yeah, when you're reading in that small circle and you're having them read you, uh... Like, what do you all look for? What is what is that process? 
I mean, the great thing about having this small circle is that we all know each other's quirks. So they know that for me in particular, I'm a very character driven writer. And at times that comes at the expense of plot. <laughs> um, so they always kind of are, you know, kind of nudging me back toward plot, like, okay, that this is amazing. We love how well you fleshed out this character and we understand their motivations and they're so complex and interesting, but where is the plot, Nicole? <laughs> so that, that is usually um, what they're helping me the most with. Plus, you know, any grammatical or syntactical sure. things that I might've missed, obviously. Yeah. I, uh, I, I also, when I'm reading even just like finished books, right. I <laughs> care way more about character and the vibe than a plot. Uh, someone <laughs> called me out on that on a recent podcast. I was like, listen, I don't know. Like, when I explain what dances is about, I'll like not talk about the plot. Most likely I'll talk about the vibes <laughs> and, uh, and that's just who I am. That's I, I, I find that fascinating as a writer reader, like what people are into. Um, did for dances, the character come first then? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What was that Genesis? Like, like, did you, did she just pop into your head? Um, I would say it's more gradual than that. So it's yeah. just sort of like, you know, I kind of came up with a situation first. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write mm -hmm. about the first black ballerina somewhere. Um, and I started trying to think of what this first black ballerina would be like. Um, so for me, I think because of the sort of significance of her being black in this context, the type of blackness I wanted to talk about is probably what came first. Um, so was she someone who was culturally black? Was she absorbed in black culture? Um, how did that look on her? What did she look like? Is she somebody who is maybe racially ambiguous, but black and has to deal with that? Or is she someone who would maybe be the victim of colorism within the black community and would have to deal with that kind of tension? Um, how comfortable would she be in predominantly white spaces because of how she presents her blackness, et cetera? Um, so I think I probably started there with Cece. Mm -hmm. But see, like, how do you how do you decide those things? I feel like what you just described, I think, especially as like a white man who doesn't think about things like this without being conscious about it. How do you navigate the evolution of who CC became? In CC's case, it had a lot to do with how the classical and neoclassical ballet world is right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, the classical neoclassical ballet world is starting to have conversations that are much needed about how they treat black bodies, but in particular black female bodies. Um, black men have had a very different trajectory within this space. Um, not That is not to say that they haven't faced any kind of adversity. They've certainly been objectified and fetishized for a long time. Um, but the acceptance of black male dancers in um, prominent spaces on the stage has happened way faster than it has for Black women in dance. Um, and, you know, the promotion of Misty Copeland really accelerated this conversation. But to be honest, the conversation is still moving very, very slowly. Um, and there is still this hesitancy to center Black women in dance who are not proximal to whiteness in any way. So they're um, dark skinned, they don't have hair that is a loose coil or a wave. Um, so, you know, I made sure I think to specify in the book that CC is dark skinned and she's got 4C hair. So she's got 
a tight coil. Um, she's not proximal to whiteness. And the reason that I made that decision is just because I think that the envelope needs to be pushed a lot further in terms of the conversations that are happening right now in the dance world about how uh, classical and neoclassical ballet has treated black women in particular and not any other woman of color really. Yeah. Um, is it because like the ballet audience typically is like upper middle-class white people and that's kind of like why black women have had a black women have struggles in many areas, obviously, but just in ballet specifically, is it because who's watching ballet? It, that has a it's a lot of things that has a lot mm -hmm. to do with it um and the reason that that's who's watching ballet is because ballet has notoriously not been super accessible to anybody else mm -hmm. um both economically but also in what's represented on stage if yeah. you think about the classics they these are basically interpretations of european folk tales um which exclude people who are not of european origin mm -hmm. um and we also can't ignore i mean i'm specifying classical and neoclassical ballet worlds because you're not seeing this same trajectory play out as slowly as it's playing out in more contemporary forms okay. of dance. Um, and that's because classical ballet in particular has incredibly racist roots. Um, I mean, I, I always say that if you want a perfect example of how resistant classical ballet is to getting with the times in terms of how it deals with race, um, take a look at what happens when a ballet company decides to cut out the racist components of the Nutcracker. People lose their minds. They act mm. like you're canceling Christmas and all you're doing is saying, hey, maybe let's not have a super racist Asian dance in the middle of this ballet. Um, but the ballet world is sort of founded on racism. Mm. I mean, for a really long time, black people were not considered beautiful enough or classical enough to participate in this art form. And like I said, black men have had a very different trajectory. It's been problematic, but they have been allowed into that space further sooner than black women have. I mean, I think that there are still probably little black dancers out there right now who are being told that their lines are not classical enough, their bodies are not delicate enough, um, they're not beautiful enough to be on the stage. And, you know, it's just been, it's been very, very slow to seriously contend with this, this problem of racism um, and frankly, misogyny in the ballet worlds, particularly with the classical and neoclassical ballet worlds. Yeah, as a black woman who is writing about ballet, and you also, you know, practice it, but through writing this book, um, with research and whatnot, did you see pushback? Like, like, what was that like, I guess? Like, I, I, yeah. I think the thing that's funny about it is that the pushback largely doesn't come from the dancers. It largely comes from, um, people who are in some way sponsors of the ballet. So not even necessarily the audience, it's oftentimes um, the people who are providing the money to, to yeah. the ballet companies okay. um, who, who are giving this resistance. So in conducting my research, because the research is not really representing that group of people, you're hearing from dancers um, and you're hearing from um, artistic directors who are all more or less in agreement that yes we need to do something different than what we've been doing um and there are a lot of dancers out there right now um misty copeland obviously is a big one but even before her aisha ash 
um, currently Ashley Murphy Wilson. All of these are black female dancers who are trying to do a lot to make ballet A, more accessible to people of color um, and B, more um, less hostile to women of color. Um, so it's not so much that there's pushback at this point, it's more that there's a lot of lack of awareness. I think that, um, you know, artistic directors of major ballet companies are overwhelmingly white. Um, and I think a lot of the time they simply are not thinking about these issues at all, or mm -hmm. certainly not prioritizing these issues. And to, you know, unfortunately still the classical and neoclassical ballet audience is predominantly white and is not thinking about these issues at all. Um, and, you know, a lot of the female dancers are predominantly white still in um, major ballet or major touring companies in the United States. And they're not thinking about these issues. So mm -hmm. because ballet is still incredibly whitewashed, there's, you know, a bunch of people who are gathered who have the privilege to not think about these things. So it's not necessarily that they are opposed to it. I think a lot of the time, it's just that they're not even thinking about it at all. Um, but when they're presented with the issue, I think I've found that a lot of people, particularly the dancers, are quite passionate about changing this. It's just that it's been slow to reach the audience um, mm -hmm. in a critical way. And it's been really slow to reach the sort of sponsors in a critical way. Yeah, I I, I am more into sports than dance. And I think about like the history of sports um, mm -hmm. and like the color barrier and and I have a complicated relationship with sports too, because I do feel it's like a modern form of slavery in a sense. Uh, just, that's <laughs> yeah. a whole nother topic. But uh, yeah, I just, I, I have never thought about racism and dance because I don't interact with ballet or <laughs> contemporary dance. Yeah. So thank you for like educating me and hopefully people who are listening, because I, I don't think... Uh, as progressed as we have become in Black Lives Matter and racism in America, there are these still blind spots, even like, mm -hmm. obviously, like, I knew it existed, but I don't, I don't interact. I don't think about it. And I, right. I want that to change for myself and hopefully people listening. Um, so through dances, through writing, um, through, so you mentioned your editing style. Once you get, once you get an editor, I'm always fascinated with this. What does that process look like to loop it back to your book? Like you go through your, your, your process, it gets sold. Mm -hmm. What is your editor? What do, what do you guys look at originally? So I should be upfront about the fact that I hate editing, like with a <laughs> oh, okay. fiery passion. <laughs> um, I do it because I know I have to, um, but I kind of reach a point where I have revised I've gone through again and I'm like okay that's it I'm done um and then I give it to my editor who's like no you're not done <laughs> um, and so it's kind of this uh process where she'll send me back um her notes and she'll have really good points and I'll write it all down and then I'll be like oh now I have to go back and implement all of this and that sounds terrible um so I usually have like a whole process where I kind of go through her notes and I synthesize them so I basically write like kind of like an abstract of what what needs to change and what I need to address and then I will typically go through the entire manuscript and just kind of come up with what I call a revision plan so it's just basically this super long checklist um that details everything I need to do and on what page I need to do it. Mm. And then um, 
because I'm a pretty lazy editor, I find the most economical way to do those things. Um, and that's what I do. <laughs> so yeah. I just go back in and I say, okay, this scene needs more tension. How can I do that in as many words or sorry, as few words as possible? Um, and, and then I, you know, maybe insert a couple sentences to a couple paragraphs that I think address the need for more tension and then I just kind of move on and then I send it back to my editor and hopefully she tells me that I have um, resolved the issues that she flagged for me. Yeah. Um, it usually, I mean, with, with dances in particular, I think it was only a couple times that we went back and forth. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm economical when it comes to editing because I, I really don't like that process, but sure. um, I do try to be effective and yeah. very focused. And, and one thing I noticed with the book, um, and I've seen a lot of like pre-plub or pre-plub, wow, ple wow, pre-plub, wow. Ple <laughs> all right, I'm going to edit this all out. Pre-pub <laughs> blurbs. Yes. Was the writing and just how like fluid it was and how gorgeous it was. Does that come naturally to you? Like, because you're talking about like adding tension and adding plot, but like the, the mm -hmm. syntax and, and the flow, what is that like for your writing? That I would say is the part of writing that is, um, that feels the best to me. Mm. So when I sit down for a writing session, um, typically how this has worked and how it did work with dances is, you know, I would just, I can't write at home. So, you know, there's a saying out there that a writer with a deadline has the cleanest house on in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's very true. So that's why I cannot write at home. So I have to leave my house more, more often than not. Um, and I'll just sit in a cafe for hours and I'll just sit there and write and I won't stop until I basically have to go home. Um, and because I do that, what tends to happen is I will hit a flow eventually. It might not start right mm -hmm. away. It might mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. pick up at first, but eventually I'll hit a flow. Um, and it's almost like an adrenaline rush. I have to get the words out. Um, I get excited about what I know needs to happen next. I can kind of navigate the bends in the road a little bit. Um, so that part I would say is sort of I, I, I'm hesitant to make it sound easy. It's not, <laughs> um, but it, it is sort of like, you know, if, I don't know if you're someone who has ever been a runner, um, but it, it kind of reminds me of that. You get out there and the first maybe um, kilometer or so, you're like, why do I even do this? This is terrible. <laughs> why am I running? What mm -hmm. am I running? Who am I running from? What am I training for? Um, and then after that, you sort of hit this, you hit your stride um, and it just becomes rope for your body. So your body just kind of starts to do it for you. Um, and then you get that famed runner's high um, yeah. and it starts to feel good. And after you're done, you have this amazing rush of adrenaline, accomplish something difficult. And that's exactly what writing um, a, a successful or productive writing session feels like to me. Mm -hmm. uh, because you write analog on paper with pen or pencil or whatever, are you someone who do you, when you're writing and you're getting in that flow, are you writing like chronologically or is it like, okay, I, like once I finish this page, I'm just going to jump to like a scene I have in mind or how, what is that process? For the most part, I write chronologically. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I might suddenly be inspired to write a chapter out of sequence. Um, but for the most overwhelmingly, most of the time, I'm going to write chronologically. Yeah, that's I do find that fascinating because I'm someone who 
I mean, even how I interview, it's like, okay, let's talk about this. I'll come back to it like in 10 minutes. Let's talk about something else. Um, yeah. <laughs> I cannot imagine like being that disciplined to have a plan and I do not do that <laughs> in my life. Um, yeah. And, and you mentioned character is your, like what, what drives you? Is that the same when you're reading? Do you love character driven? Do you, or do you love plot books? Cause I'm, I still am only character driven. I feel. I feel like I love both to tell yeah, you the truth. Yeah. I love a really interesting, complex, juicy character in a book, but I also love something that is very um, plot driven and that just, mm -hmm. just propels you forward constantly and you feel like you're on this ride. Um, so I do love both. I have a very eclectic taste when it comes sure. to the things that I read. Yeah. What have you been reading and enjoying lately? Um, lately, I have been reading a lot of books about music. Sure. Um, so I've been reading biographies and memoirs related to music. I'm finally getting around to reading Daisy Jones and the Six. Mm -hmm. um, I've been reading uh, one of the biographies of Robert Johnson and reading about Towns Van Zant. So mm -hmm. just really kind of absorbed in music. Um, yeah. Is that is that research for something or are you just doing that on your own? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> research inspiration sure. yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I the will project not ask that about I'm... anything. Yeah. yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, the project <laughs> I'm working on right now is about music. So I'm just kind of immersing myself. <laughs> Thank you so much to Nicole for joining the Day Beautiful podcast to discuss her debut novel, Dances. You can get it now, and you can follow her on social media at Nicole the Cuffy on Twitter. That's Nicole the Cuffy. And then her Instagram is Nick2Cole. That's N I K K 2 Cole. You can find Day Beautiful at DayBeautiful.net and on all social media at DayBeautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful.